0: Welcome today. We're so glad that you're here. All of you who are worshiping with us online and on all of our campuses, I'm so grateful you're a part of this service. An anthropologist went to the Fiji Islands to do some research. And while he was there, he was assigned one of the government officials to sort of give him a tour around and help him to better understand the islands. And so as they were talking, as they were uh, walking around and traveling around the island, the governmental official told the guy there was a time in which Christian missionaries came to the Fiji Islands, and most of the people on these islands have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, and I have given my heart to Christ as well. And the anthropologist said to him, I am so sad to hear this. These Christian missionaries, they go all over the world. And when they go all over the world, they, they disrupt all of these traditions that so many people have. I think it's horrible. Well, when the government official heard him say that, he sort of chuckled. And so he said, hey, do you see the hill that is right there, that short hill? He said, yeah, I see it. Do you see, do you see the, the boulder, the big rock boulder that is on the top of You He said, yeah, I see that. He said before the missionaries came, when someone who was a foreigner would come to one of our islands, that person, whether it was male or female, would be captured and brought to that hill and have their heads bashed upon that boulder. And then the person would be roasted and we would eat that person that night. And he said, for the rest of your life, you ought to be thankful for those Christian missionaries or you would be dinner tonight. (laughs) It's actually amazing the impact that the gospel of Jesus Christ has had, the impact that God's word has had in cultures all over the world. There is no interest in Christianity to change cultures, but to change hearts, to, to help people come to know Christ and have their lives forever altered. Uh, Tom Holland is uh, considered one of the greatest historians in Great Britain uh, of the history of the country, and uh, he is uh, amazing. He's a brilliant, brilliant man, and he has written many books on especially Western civilization. He is, he is an authority on that subject. Well, he was raised in a home where the mom was a Christian and his father was an atheist. And as he grew up, he took on his father's persuasion. And he became then this great historian. But as time went by in his life, his appreciation for Christianity greatly changed. I'm not saying he became a Christ follower because it takes more than appreciation for Christianity for a person to to become a Christian. But, But his whole attitude toward Christianity changed. Everything was altered and the reason is because what he began to discover through history. He brought all of it together in a book that he wrote called Dominion. And here are some of the quotes from his book. That's called dominion. He said the values, this is what he's come to understand, that the values we hold dear today, the welcoming of the immigrant, the care for the impoverished, the condemnation of racism, the support for human rights, all of these came because of the Bible and the Christian worldview. And he demonstrated that in his book by saying, in the Roman Empire, there was none of that present. There was no hint of anything like human rights in the Roman Empire. And in fact, he says, you can go to every single religion and you will not find in its original versions anything about human rights. You won't find anything except in Judaism. But he said Christianity took the the teachings of Judaism way further And the end result is that human rights are now understood all over the world and it is because of the influence of Christianity. We're talking about a guy who doesn't profess to be a Christian. He said Christianity in the world is the reason that the idea of human rights emerged. And then he made this statement. He says the world owes Christianity a debt of gratitude because it changed the world for good. You take one solitary life, the the life of Jesus Christ. You take one person's life, and you look at every other person, uh, the value, the the influence, the impact, and no one had a life like his. No one influenced the world like his. Today, 2.5 billion people in the world claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that doesn't count all the people from the last 2,000 years, generation after generation. I don't know how many people that that would number. But all of this because of one life and because of the things he taught that we now call the Bible. If you're going to change a worldview from a Christian or a biblical worldview you must attack the Bible. You must demean it every opportunity that you get. You must talk about it. you can't believe the Bible, you can't trust the Bible. You've got to say it over and over and over again. And you must disconnect Christians from their Bible. And over time, if you do these two things, you can turn the culture in a different Direction And that is actually what we're looking at in this series that we began last Sunday morning entitled Refocus, Seeing Moral Issues Through God's Eyes. I don't usually say this, and I don't remember the last time I did, but if you missed the message last Sunday, I, I really want you to go to the church's website or the church app and, and listen to the message because as we are doing this series... The first two messages are sort of the foundation stones. And and to go back and listen to last Sunday morning would be important to grab hold of that, and today is simply a furtherance of these foundation stones before we begin looking at five key moral issues that we face in our country. Over the next five weeks, beginning next Sunday, Pastor Xavier Maryland is going to be taking on the, the moral issue of, of um, sexuality. And then Pastor Juan Carlos is taking on the moral issue of poverty and how we're to respond to poverty. The next week on the second week of June, I'm taking on the issue of abortion. And what does the Bible say about it? We're hearing about abortion now every, everywhere, every, uh, all the time now in this moment in our country. The next week, Pastor Ender is taking on the the, the moral issue of immigration. He is an immigrant who's become a citizen of this country and he is taking on the issue of immigration according to what God's word says and there's actually quite a bit in there. And then the next week after that, we're going to deal with the issue of racism. And Pastor Xavier and I are going to do what I think maybe neither one of us have ever done. Try to preach a message together. And we're going to see if we can, we can uh, address that issue of what does the Bible teach about racism. And then we end it all up in understanding about religious freedom religious freedom in America and where we're headed. All of this is a part of this series. Now in this series, there are two worldviews that we are dealing with. The first worldview, those who study worldviews, tell us that there are two great worldviews in this country that are in competition with each other. The first is called the naturalistic worldview. The naturalistic worldview says that life is an accident of evolution, that mankind is an evolutionary accident. There's no real difference between the value of the different species, including humanity, except what the human culture imagines there to be. Now, I am being very honest about what you, you look it up. You, you go do a search on naturalistic worldview. These are the words, the kinds of words you'll be hearing. There is no ultimate purpose for living and no ultimate meaning to life. So a person must imagine or determine his or her own meaning. Morality is what the culture, are you, decides that it is. There is no life after death. The only value to living life is what you imagine it to be. And then when you die, you simply cease to exist. This is the naturalistic, the Darwinian worldview. And it's one of the two great worldviews that are now uh, colliding with each other. The second worldview is called the biblical worldview. And it simply says there is a God. And the entire universe clearly points to it. There is evidence for God, both in the expanse of the universe and all the way down to the construction of the individual human cell. There is someone that I would love for you to 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 go and hear at least hear the YouTube uh, video of this guy. His name is uh, he is a geophysicist and his name is Stephen Myers. Stephen Myers uh, does a video entitled "The Signature of the Cell." in which he takes the now the ability of looking inside the cell and actually seeing what's happening to it and he sees he will guide you through all the machinery literal machinery that's in every single one of our cells and how the machinery works he will take you through all of that it'll be a shocker to you go and watch it the signature of the cell all of this the biblical worldview says, has God's fingerprints on it. We are made by him. We have purpose and meaning to our life that has come from God himself. God created us in his own image and he has given to us great value. Morality is what God determines that it is and has been given to us in the Bible. God created us to have a relationship with him and with others and with all of his creation. There is an existence after death with God or away from God based upon how we respond to his son, Jesus Christ. These are the two definitions and descriptions of the worldviews that are colliding with each other in our country. You gotta look through both of them, which one creates the most moral and healthy culture. But here is the truth. Every single one of us, every single one of us have a measure of both worldviews in us. By the fact you're at church, you probably have a part of a biblical worldview. But by the fact that You and I, all of us have been discipled all through our life with what you hear in the media, what is stated as being absolute fact, what we learned in school of the naturalistic worldview. All of us have been trained and discipled in a naturalistic worldview as we have grown up. The end result of having two worldviews in your own heart is why we are in such conflict when we face moral issues. It's why the conflict is there. What God is doing is calling us back to the Bible. He is calling us to the Bible and saying, I want you to establish the morals of your life in accordance with my word. If you've been a Christian for very long, and especially in this church, you've heard this many times that the greatest purpose that God has for Christ followers is that we would become like Jesus. The Bible says it, the New Testament, over and over again, you find it everywhere, that the greatest purpose that God has in our life is to change us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. We even as a church have adopted that idea in our purpose statement. So I'm going to ask you, would you say our purpose statement with me? Our purpose is to love and lead all people to life change in Christ. Our purpose as a church is to love and to lead all people. All people means all people. It means every person. It means every human being to love and lead all people to life Change in Christ. That phrase, life change in Christ, simply actually means to be more like Jesus. So how would you describe Jesus? More than likely, we would say, well, he, he took on a body born in Bethlehem, grew up, and he taught us about, about more about God than we knew before and, and did miracles, and then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and he rose again from the grave. Well, that's all true, but these are events in Jesus's life. But how would you describe who he is? I came across a verse that just, I knew, I had read it a million times, but all of a sudden it grabbed me for the first time, several years ago. It gives the most concise description of Jesus that I think you can read anywhere in the New Testament. John chapter one, verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's how he's describing Jesus. Jesus was full of grace, meaning love. From the sole of his his foot to the top of his head, Jesus was filled with love. But at the same time, from the sole of his foot to the top of his head, he was full of truth. He was full, meaning a capital G, grace, and a capital T, truth. To become more like Christ is that. But I have noticed that Christians tend to gravitate to one of these with a capital and the other with a small letter, lowercase level. So here's what I mean. Oftentimes, Christians gravitate to a capital G grace, but a little t truth. Or a capital T truth, but a little g grace. And not just Christians, but whole churches so that grace without truth is like a medicine bottle with no medicine in it it tends to compromise with the uh, compromise the Bible's teaching about morality and usually becomes no different in outcome than the godless culture around it and because it's applauded by the world it feels inwardly justified in doing so look how the world loves us. But others tend to have a capital T with a little G. Truth without grace tends to be harsh and mean. You ever met any Christians like that? Truth without grace tends to be harsh and mean. It tends to push the Bible down the throats of others and it compromises the Bible's teaching about love. It turns people away from God, but inwardly feels justified in doing it because after all, we're standing for the truth. But in the Bible, it takes both grace with a capital G and truth with a capital T to be like Jesus. And God sees. And when God sees that your and my life is filled with grace and filled with truth, both at the same time. He honors those who live by both grace and truth. Last fall, I was praying, God, what do you want me to teach in the first half of 2022? What do you want me to teach? I wanna start getting ready for that. I'd already come to the conclusion in the summer that God was leading me to teach on the love chapter, the love challenge is the series name, beginning in January. And when I became convinced in my heart this is where we needed to go, I pulled together staff members and we put together a plan. How could we make this a whole church emphasis where we are reaching out to people that don't know us, we don't know them, but they're in need and we care for them, we love them. We help them. And did you know we ended up helping over a hundred people in some physical need they had as an expression of the love of Christ. We learned in the love challenge all the definitions or all the characteristics that the Bible gives about the word love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. It was really a series about grace with a capital g. Well, in the fall, knowing that this was coming, I was praying, God, what do you want me to teach in the first half of 2022? And I got, I felt in my quiet time, God brought me back to John chapter 1 verse 14, full of grace and truth. And so the next series we went to was the book of Daniel. And as we went to the book of Daniel in the first 6 chapters, It was entitled Standing Strong. And if you remember that as we walk through each chapter, we notice in each of the stories that it was always the Bible that changed the moment. You remember uh, the the Babylonians stole some of these young Jewish boys and took them back to Babylon and began a re-education plan with them to make them Babylonian. But in the course of it, Daniel stood and said, no, I won't go this direction. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, I'm not gonna go this direction. And every single chapter, the story in the chapter, was they responded the way they did because of the Bible. I will follow God's word no matter the consequences of it. We were really talking about truth with a capital T. And then I felt in my heart that God wanted us to come to this series that we're in now. That the country is going through so many moral issues. How do we understand the right direction? How do we go in the right way? And so God put on my heart to come to this series called Refocus and deal with moral issues, addressing each one of these moral issues with both truth and grace. And here we are. This series will not be about politics. We're not going to talk politics at all. I know both political parties have uh, addressed some of these moral issues, but for this series, we don't care. The only thing we care about is what does the Bible teach us about these moral issues. We just want to hear what God has to say (laughs) now politics is good don't ever say that politics is evil Uh, there's some evil in it but politics is good this is a democracy we ought to be politically involved we should be we should vote every time we get a chance to vote being citizens of this country in freedom so I'm not putting politics down but I am saying this politics is not God no political party is going to save America. The only one's gonna save America is God. That's the only direction it's coming from. So, we're going to take what the Bible says about five moral issues. But I, I think you gotta be asking the question, why? I mean, how, how do you know that the Bible is true. Don't, don't tell me because your parents told you. How do you know that the Bible is something that you can model your life after, that you can actually listen to and gain an understanding of what is right and wrong? And that's what the rest of this message is going to be about. How do I know that the Bible is true? From the time I was a teenager all through my life, I have, I have encountered individuals who kept trying to tell me, You can't trust the Bible, it's full of errors. I had a teacher in high school that once he found out I was a Christian, he worked on me that entire year trying to help me to understand, You cannot trust the Bible. I had two professors in college who worked on me. You cannot trust the Bible. Because my first year, I went to the University of Maryland in my college uh, life, and I experienced the pressure. But all of these years, as I've tried to talk to individuals who don't know Christ, the objection that is always, almost always raised is you can't trust the Bible. This is just fiction. These are just fictitious stories. It's full of errors, And when I've asked, well, where are the errors? What are the errors? And it's always said, well, okay, first of all, so many times in the Bible it says that the earth is flat. And we know it's round. And since the Bible teaches the earth is flat, you can't believe the Bible. Can I tell you something? I've read through the Bible cover to cover so many times and not one place in the Bible does it ever say that the earth is flat. Not one place. Not one place. Never, ever in the Bible. But why do people keep saying it? Because somebody heard somebody else say it, who heard somebody else say it, who heard somebody else say it, and they took it as, as fact. And here's what I've discovered. 99% of the people that tell me that the Bible is full of errors have never even read it. They don't even know what's in it. So, how do we know that the Bible is true? Four key things we're gonna work through. The first one is this. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the most compelling evidences that the Bible is true. There are thousands of prophecies in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. And when you take seriously what they say, there are several key things to grab hold of. First, the fulfilled prophecies of the first coming of Christ are profound. There are 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ. And they're not just saying there is a Messiah coming. They are specific. He will be born in Bethlehem. That greatly reduces who this could be. They are, will be born during the time of the Roman Empire. They will perform miracles. And even in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says here is the time zone that the Messiah will come. They will perform miracles. They will be betrayed. The person will be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver. The person will be crucified. The person will rise again. 300 specific Prophecies dating back at least a thousand years before Christ came. So there was someone who decided that they would come up with a project. They picked 48 key prophecies, and they asked someone who is an expert in calculating probability. And they asked, would you calculate the mathematical probability of these 48 prophecies Being fulfilled in one human being, and that person came up with one chance out of 13 trillion, but it was just 48 of the 300 prophecies. Now, I've given you that information in a QR code, I know. I have really arrived. I I have. Oh, it's the first time I've ever done it. I'm very proud of myself. And it's at the very end of your student notes. There it is. And you can use, not now, not now, but after it's all over, you can check that QR code. It'll take you to a landing page. And those of you who are worshiping online, you're getting information from those who are helping you. And you can go to that and you'll get the landing page of all the documentation I'm giving to you because I don't have time to to go through the details the second one the second one is the prophecy about the city of Tyre made by Ezekiel in 580 BC it came literally true exactly as Ezekiel gave it 300 years later under Alexander the Great now he didn't say Tyre is going to be destroyed well pretty much every city would be destroyed Eventually, no, he gave exactly details of how it would be destroyed. And that is exactly what happened in history by Alexander the Great, who wasn't a reader of the Bible. How in the world would Ezekiel know 300 years before it happened the details of how the city of Tyre would be destroyed? Third. The book of Daniel's prophecies. By the way, you can go to the Ezekiel passage in your QR code. The, Dan- the book of Daniel prophesied that four great kingdoms would come. The first two he lived through it was Babylon, it was Persia, but then he gave prophecies about the coming of two others, and he gave specific details of description about both of those. Turned out to be Greece and the Roman Empire, but he explains them amazingly in detail. How did he know that? Daniel lived 500, 600 years before. How in the world did he know that? The fourth is what has happened in modern times, the return of the Jews to Israel. In the last days, eight prophecies in the Old Testament said that in the last days, the the Jewish people will return to their homeland and these are the things that will happen when they do. Well, we've watched it happen before our very eyes. Go to the QR code and look at those eight prophecies and compare them to the country of Israel today and you will be amazed about how specific and how accurate. So the question is this, how in the world did all of these prophets know that these things would happen? There is a verse in the Bible, I didn't look it up, but it just came to my mind. There is a verse in the Old Testament that says, I have given you the understanding of what is to come so that no one would doubt that I am God, because only I would know. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest evidences of the validity of Scripture. Second of all, the historical accuracy of the Bible gives evidence of its validity. Any historian who is honest will admit that the Bible has been proven to be completely accurate archeologically. Meaning you can take the stories of the Bible and it gives a description Uh, the name of the town and the description of where the town is located and the book of Acts in the New Testament, a description and it gives you where it is, you can go and dig in that spot and you will find that city. That is not true about other ancient literature. It's not true about Egyptian literature, Assyrian, Babylonian, or Persian, but it is true about the Bible. And here is what Dr. Nelson Gluick, who is probably the greatest modern authority on Israeli archaeology, has said. He says, no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible and by the same token proper evaluation of biblical descriptions have often led to amazing discoveries. What he is saying is you can take what this says in the Bible go to that coordinates to that location and dig and you will find what the Bible says is there. It is historically accurate Third, the scientific accuracy of the Bible gives evidence of its validity. You're gonna need that QR code again at the end of your student notes after the message is over if you want more information because you can get it there. But let me just share a few. The Bible is the first to teach that the earth is a circle. It was not known that that was the case especially during the day of Isaiah Isaiah lived 600 years before Christ came and here's what Isaiah 40 says he meaning God is, is enthroned sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers he stretch out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in you can't find any other ancient literature that uses that description of the earth at that period of time. Second of all, the hydrologic cycle is given to us in Ecclesiastes 1.7, but the hydrologic cycle, water cycle, was not discovered by science for hundreds of years later. And yet here it is, Ecclesiastes 1.7, and Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and he wrote it 1,000 years before Jesus, and he perfectly describes that cycle. Understand something. The Bible's not a science book. It doesn't want to be. It did not intend to be. It has no interest in being a science book. But when the Bible talks about scientific things, it is amazingly accurate before its time the vast number of stars. Uh, uh, Jeremiah described, Jeremiah thirty three twenty three 23, describes millions of stars. But at that time, the naked eye can only see about, I could be wrong about the number, but it's not far off, around 3,000 stars. You can't see millions of stars with the naked eye, you can only see about three or so thousand stars. It wasn't until the telescope that you, we began to realize, whoa, there's a whole lot more stars out there than I realized. It wasn't until the satellites that we discovered how vast the Hubble telescope, the, how vast the universe is. It has millions and maybe even billions of stars. But here is Jeremiah describing it, the vast number. How did he know this? Jeremiah lived 600 years before Christ. The law of increasing entropy. The word entropy means a gradual decline in disorder. It's the second law of thermodynamics. And listen to how he describes it. Psalm 102 verse 25 to 27. Long ago you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you will remain forever. Listen to this. They will, meaning the universe, they will wear out like old clothing. No one thought that about the universe. It's going to wear out. Now it is a scientific principle. But nobody understood this all the way back to the Psalms, the time of King David, a thousand years before Christ. You will change them like a garment and discard them, but you are always the same. You'll live forever. The Bible has no interest in being a science book, but when it describes it, it describes things before its time. The importance of blood in the life cycle, Leviticus 17. The atmospheric circulation was an unknown thing but it is perfectly described in Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse six, how the the atmosphere circulates around the globe. And here is the big one for me, boy, listen to this. The earth hangs in outer space. Job chapter 26, verse seven. Job was one of, if not the first book in the entire Bible that was written. It is considered the oldest bible in uh, the oldest book in the Old Testament. Job chapter 26 verse 7 listen, listen to what he says. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. How did he know that? You look at all the ancient literature, and they'll say, well, the earth is sitting on top of two big turtles. I'm not kidding. That's just one of the explanations of the earth. It's all that kind of stuff in ancient literature, you can imagine. But here is Job saying, he hung the earth on nothing. How did he know that? And some of you think, yeah, but what about, what about evolution and other things? Here's what I want you to write down. I wish I had put it in your notes, but I just didn't think of it. There is a website called reasons.org, reasons.org. It is uh, created by astrophysicist Hugh Ross, and Hugh Ross has been in our church, the most brilliant man you've ever met, Hugh Ross. And this whole website is just scientists who are Christ followers answering issues related to the Bible, go and hear, go and learn, go and listen. Now here is the last one, I gotta hurry, I'm so late. (laughs) The fact that the Bible works is the greatest proof of all. It works. The Bible changes lives, it has for thousands of years in every race, in every nation, in every tribe to which it's gone. Rich or poor, scholar or uneducated, king or commoner, men of literally every background and every walk of life. And you would think if God was going to create a book for us, it would have to be able to be understood by everybody. Brilliant and unbrilliant, rich and poor, It has to speak to every heart, and it is exactly what the Bible has. Multitudes of people, past and present, all over the world have found from personal experience that the Bible's promises are true, its counsel is sound, its commands and restrictions are wise, and this wonderful message of salvation meets every need for both time and eternity. You can build your life on this book and never be disappointed. You can make your decisions based on this book and it will never lead you astray. You can't say that about any other book that has ever been known. So in one minute, let me tell you about my own life. I was raised in a pastor's home. I was raised by a godly man and woman, and they taught me right. But i got to tell you, when I became a senior in high school and my first year in college, uh, I rebelled. My two sisters didn't. They just... But, of course, it had to be me. I rebelled. And what I have come to see now as I've looked back in my life, all I was actually trying to do is make is to figure out what I believed. I wanted my own faith, not the faith of my parents. They were wonderful and they were right, but I wanted my own. And I didn't go about it very well, and I'm sure I worried them sick. But I wanted to know that I knew that this was true. And in the course of all of my exploration, I came to one book that turned everything around for me. Josh McDowell wrote it, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict, because I was at least aware that if you can prove or disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything falls away or everything is established. No matter what question you have, if Jesus rose from the dead, you're gonna get through that issue. But if he didn't, Don't bother. And for the first time in my life, I saw evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ not being a religious myth, not a feel-good story, but an actual event in history, and it changed my life. The only reason I'm here as a pastor today and at this church today is because of what this book did in my life and now I knew it was true and I decided I'm all in. I'm asking you, would you open your heart to the evidences that this book is what it claims to be? Open your heart to it. Go into the QR codes, go beyond them, go explore. And you're going to discover that the negative ones out there that are criticizing the scriptures, haven't read them, don't know what they're talking about, they're counting on you not knowing the Bible either. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we ask, oh God, change hearts. Oh God, turn our heart to you. Moving hearts, you know us. You know every person in the room and the struggle and difficulty that every person in this room is going through. And I ask, Father, that your spirit would work in our heart and bring us into a deeper relationship with you through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.